0: All right, go ahead and stay open to John chapter 1 if you haven't. John chapter 1. Joy. What gives you great joy this December? What is it that you are most excited about? What are you rejoicing in? Well, what the gospel writer of John rejoices in is Jesus' arrival, and he does it in a very poetical way. This is not exactly a poem, but John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is what we call elevated prose, right? Not quite a formal poem, but it, it beautiful words, and John has especially chose words inspired by the Spirit of God, which, I mean, what poet and songwriter would not want to be inspired by the Spirit of God. But right here, John's words are magnificently creative and eternally true about who Jesus is. But today we're going to get to what he does. John's already told us some things in power and beauty about Jesus. One, Jesus is preexistent. He existed before time, before before this whole world was created. Jesus was there and St. Nicholas puts it This way for us, there never was a time when Jesus was not. He has always existed as the second person of the Trinity with the Father, with the Spirit. You know, that's one of the what's one of the most neglected truths of Christianity. Many Christians don't believe that. When Jesus came, as 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 John said and is saying that he came, John's also saying he's always existed. Jesus was not created 2000 years ago. He took on flesh 2000 years ago. Very important, but John's already told us he's pre-existent that he is truly God. He is God. And that in that as God he created everything. As he steps into creation, he is stepping into the very things that he created and that in his incarnation, he is the life-giving light. What we just read about, that he brings us back to the garden, into fellowship, into life with God. Well, this morning, John's going to keep going, talking about this light, this light. Look at verse 9 with me. John tells us that the light finally... The light finally arrives. Finally arrives. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Luke puts it differently. He actually describes the nativity, the scene in Bethlehem, the night that Jesus was born. Matthew's similar but but different shares uh, about the hardship that Jesus endured and being hated and, and sought by Herod to be put to death. But right here, John puts it this way, that the light was coming into the world, and he gives the light's purpose right at the beginning. What kind of light? The true light. Now, this is a contrasting light, a contrasting light. The true light. What does he mean by that? He's not saying, hey, we've got true lights, and then we've got false lights, but more like we have the the lasting light, and we have things that might give us light for a little while, but I think the image here is flickering lights, you know, they might give us light for a time, but, but in the end, they, they don't. They go out. They'll be gone. What are some of those things? Some things that maybe are good, but just not eternally life-giving. Think of, think of self helpisms isms um, Think about uh, working out and diets. They're good. They're good. Think about things like meditation that are popular today. Whatever it is, some things in particular, there's a thinking in Americans about a connecting to the energy of creation, but it gives us no relationship with the creator, right? And maybe it helps you work harder, maybe it helps you think differently, but, but it's not a lasting change in you, Right? It's not a lasting change in you. It doesn't give me a relationship with my creator. It doesn't bring me back to the garden. And it doesn't pledge me to devote myself to God. It doesn't give life and it doesn't give me to God. Think about those things. I think of self-helpism, meditation, a number of different things. They ultimately don't give life with God. And that's the biggest problem with them. And so if they promised us or someone looked for life in them, man, what a loss for them. John right here tells us in highest form about the true life, the light-giving life. D.A. Carson says this. He says that Jesus is the genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. If we want to know who God is, then we must look at the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Because he is what? The true light. The true light. Now, what is the light's purpose? It's to give knowledge of God. To give knowledge of God. That's what Jesus has come to do, to reveal who God is. But, but what does this word everyone mean? In fact, I've got, I've got friends, I've got universalists that believe we are all going to heaven no matter what you believe and confess and do, like, and, and this is one of their favorite verses right here, that Jesus, the true light, gives light to everyone. Now, what, what does that mean? Does it mean what my universalist friends think it means right here, that Jesus, Jesus gives everyone light? I don't think so. It means this, that Jesus reveals God no matter what. Jesus reveals God, objective statement. No matter what you and I think or believe or how we respond to Jesus, Jesus truly reveals who God is. I mean, no matter what I think, He is the true light. He reveals it to anyone and everyone, no matter how they respond, he objectively displays who God is and how to have life with him. That's what it means. Now, where does this light come from? Or where does it come? It comes to us, to us, the incarnation. John's going to to begin to unfold this incarnation through the light has dawned in the darkness, has come to us. He is the revelation of God. That's what's so exciting for John. But as the light steps down from heaven to earth into the darkness, John begins to highlight the social reaction, society's reaction to the light. What is the world's response to Jesus John tells us right off the bat that the light is rejected. That's where John goes in verse 10, that the light is rejected. He was in the world, the light, right? This metaphor, Jesus is the light. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. What does John tell us as as he's describing the magnificence of who Jesus is? He says, as he came, he's rejected. As he's exalting in Jesus, he has to confess and admit that Jesus is rejected in two ways. The first way is this, that the creation rejects its own creator. The creation rejects its very own creator. What irony right here. It's some of the irony that, that Peter picks up on in Acts 3.15, where he uses the phrase, as he is speaking and trying to persuade his own fellow Israelites to believe the good news about Jesus. He, he, I mean, he puts a point on his persuasion, and he uses these words. He says, you killed the author of life, right? Isn't that ironic? You crucified the author of life, right? It's irony in the statement. And what's the irony here? That Jesus created all the world. There's nothing that you and I look to that Jesus isn't the author of. And and yet when he comes to his creation, he's ignored. He's rejected. I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd thinking about about, uh, artists and writers and and creators and, and, uh, and to have your very own work turn its back on you, to reject you, to ignore you, to say, I don't know you. It's absurd. And yet that's what Jesus experienced when he came, a complete and total rejection from his creation. John's talking in broad swaths here, and, and uh, it's true. It's true. Most people rejected Jesus. But secondly, John puts a point on this. He says that Israel rejects the true Israelite. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. He comes from a people. Matthew and Luke highlight a uh, lineage that goes... Um, From Adam through Abraham through David, he is distinctively from a Jewish lineage. The prophecies about him are specifically Jewish prophecies about a Jewish king who would come and save them and impact the whole world. But when this Savior shows up, when this light arrives to his people, his people ignore him they reject him as well. And in fact, um, it's emphatic, Jesus didn't just lose the election for this Jewish savior title among, among the thinking and, uh, of the Jewish people, but they executed him. They wanted him gone, right? Now John doesn't write this for you and I to pick up some anti-Jewish sentiment It's just a theological point that John needs to make. Jesus was wholly and clearly rejected, even though he came as the light. He reveals the light of God to everyone, but most people rejected Jesus. Why does John share that in such a beautiful poem about Jesus' incarnation? Why? Because this is the introduction to John's gospel and and here's the um the technical term for this john as an author is using what we called omniscient audience he's letting us know right at the beginning what the conclusion is who is jesus he's god he created everything he's the second person of the of the trinity And yet he's letting us know up front before he records any stories about people rejecting him, before Jesus walks into Jerusalem and John records that and everybody is up in arms and so angry and wants to kill him, before people are plotting against him, before Caiaphas prophesies, hey, Jesus needs to die. God told me that Jesus needs to die. We should get rid of him. Before any of that, John lets us know Jesus is going to be rejected right at the beginning of, go- of his gospel, so that we would get the point of this light. Now, here's what you and I need to take as application, because we become that omniscient audience. We understand that Jesus is being rejected. You and I need to have an open heart to being rejected in Jesus' place. We need to be okay with that. This is a, this is a tag at the end of Uh, Roger's message, phenomenal message last week. I watched it online. Um, I won't tell you what kind of state of health I was in as I watched it, but I watched it, I made it through, I enjoyed it, I loved it. Thanks for preaching last week, Roger. Um, But if we are going to be Jesus' representative, his light in our world, that we have to be okay with not everybody loves Jesus' light. And there are a lot of people that are going to reject Jesus' light and that we're not going to take that personally. Because right here in John chapter 1, he tells us that Jesus is rejected outright by most everyone who should have received him. And so you and I as a church can celebrate in the way of the cross that we chose Jesus to follow him and that his light is going to be reflected through us and that we pretty much expect that we, when we look at the rest of the world, no one's going to celebrate that you chose Jesus' cross too. But that you would walk in on a Sunday morning, that you would go to community group, that you would have a fellowship, that people that say, yes, you chose Jesus' cross and to suffer with him and to represent him, you chose the way of Jesus and we rejoice in that too that we we be that kind of community for each other because we know that as we look at the world, no one is rejoicing that you chose Jesus. No one. Except your brothers and sisters in all of heaven. We need to understand that Jesus' light was rejected, that his message will be rejected, And, and at times, you and I need to be okay with being a bold witness, and some people not liking that. Rejecting you because of Jesus, that we need to be okay with that. John's very upfront with it. John lived through it too. And we live in the same world Jesus and John did. The light arrived, the light was promptly rejected. That's the storyline that John gives us. So, why did Jesus come if he was rejected by his creation? Why did he come if he was rejected by his people? There's a big answer to that. John moves on, but in order for us to understand this point, the light is received. The light is received. Broadly and mostly rejected, but the light is received. But in order for us to understand this, we have to understand a a poetical term, a chiasm Which stands for the Greek letter X. When we transliterate, it transliterates English to X. And essentially, it's a literary term where an author is going to build to some point and then we'll we'll move away from that point by repeating exactly what he just said. That's what John is doing all through verses 1 through 18, right? So, for you literary buffs, you're going to love this, right? And for those of you that aren't, hang with me for just a minute. Because we need to see that John is making one main point in verses one through eighteen, and yeah, we've carved this out into four messages, but there's one main point that he's making. One main point. Here's what a chiasm does: a chiasm is uh, it builds, like I said, kind of like half of an X. Oh, there we go! Nice definition of a chiasm: repetition of any group of verse elements in reverse order, such as rhyme, scheme. So you're going to see a build, right, where we are moving towards something and then away from something. Here's an example, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, which if you didn't grab a book, Gentle and Lowly, we want to give one away to you. If you already have this book, we still want to give it away to you, right? But it's based on these verses right here from Matthew 11. Here's the chiasm, you have the first line A. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Right? Here's Jesus' invitation. Come to me if you've got a burden. Be, and I will give you rest. His promise to you, take my yoke upon you. Right? We're building to this. See, Jesus' revelation about his very own heart. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls he already said that but he's repeating it right these two lines b are parallel to each other in my burden is light what's the main point right here that jesus is gentle and lowly in heart all the other things are important but you see how we're building to that mountaintop to understand that jesus is gentle and lowly and then we're declining from that why the same slope the same words that's exactly what we have right here in john chapter one where jesus says this or john says this he speaks about the words the word jesus The Word's activity in creation in verses 1 through 5. John's witness concerning the light in verses 6 through 8. All building to what? The incarnation of the Word. Jesus becomes flesh for a purpose. He comes to us because there's a great act of redemption for Him to do. It's all building to this in verses 9 through 14. And then where do we go after that? Where does John go? He goes back to John the Baptist His witness concerning the Word. Jesus is above everything. And he ends the final revelation brought by Jesus Christ, the Word, in verses 16 through 18. Right? You see that? What's the big point right here? Jesus' incarnation. That's the big point. Verses 9 through 14. And there's even there's even one verse in particular that is the very climax of the poem, and it's right dead in the center. It's verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here is John's main point in all these verses Why did the light come? Because some did believe Jesus. While he was broadly rejected, there were some, fewer than you might think, but there were some who believed him. And what did Jesus do for those who believed him? Jesus authoritatively claims them into the family of God. The family of God. To be claimed into the family of God. There's a word that you're thinking of that I think of. To be claimed into a family. Adoption. Adoption. I, I put this differently because I really want us to see that, that what John is saying is Jesus has the authority. He's the creator. He's the one who created all the world. And even though he's rejected, he has the authority to bring you back to the family of God. That what was broken in the garden, Jesus is the one who has the power to change that, to authoritatively claim someone. Now, now we get confused about this as Christians because we talked about, we talk about being God's children, right? And maybe you learned that in Sunday school. And, and here's the big question: is like, it's nice and warm and fuzzy, but I mean, what does it mean to be a child of God? And how do we use that? Well, well, different, different writers in the Bible use those terms differently, but the Bible as a whole speaks about God having a fatherly disposition towards his image bearers, a fatherly disposition. But I'll just tell you, in John's mind, that does not mean that you necessarily belong to the family of God, right? The, the, the word child, child of God that John uses, he never uses to speak about image bearers. He only uses it about people that are specifically saved, by Jesus' special grace. He he doesn't use it to apply to mankind or humanity. He only uses these familiar words, child of God, to talk about Jesus' true disciples, those who believe Jesus. That special grace John reserves this term child, this idea of belonging in God's family for those who truly believe Jesus, not all of creation. What we see here is the rejected Jesus has claiming authority that he can include us and bring us or adopt us into the family of God. Anyone who believes this light belongs in God's family, John goes on to say this, um, quote Jesus' words, John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That when Jesus says that he has the power to bring us into the family of God, it's a secure place, right? We don't have to think at the next family gathering, where do I sit with so and so? We know what God thinks about us. Because Jesus has come in the flesh for this purpose to claim, to possess the people that God has given him, to bring them into the family. Paul picks up this this metaphor about uh, being adopted into God's family, and and he sees it as tied to the Spirit of God, right? And he he says it in Romans 8, you know, that, that through our Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. We know that we are claimed by God because we walk by the Spirit. He's given His Spirit to us that it's by the grace of Jesus that we belong. Or, or when He's writing to the Galatians, right, that it's not the law, it's not the flesh, it's not anything that we do to improve ourselves or make ourselves better to God, but it's purely because of the grace of Jesus that we're united to Him that we walk in the Spirit, that that tells us we belong. Nothing else. Nothing else. Not anything that we can do, but a work of God, the Son and the Spirit, the Father claiming us. John uses this word, he qualifies this as believe. Right? So if we we were going to help our universalist friends understand, what does everyone mean? It means that Jesus demonstrates who God is, objectively, to the world. But that doesn't mean that everybody believes the light or belongs to God and qualifies that with believing. Now, a lot of times we, we use this word belief as um, you know, a statement of faith or a confession. And that's not what John means right here. There, there are kind of uh, two ways to think about belief right here. One is assenting or believing in some facts. Just objectively, it's true. But then there's another that says, I'm going to rest my life on this. It's, it's like this. And, and a lot of you parents know this when your kids start to drive, right? You could, you could be talking to somebody and, uh, and you could say, oh, so-and-so is a good driver, <laughs> right? And uh, that's your confession of them. Uh, maybe it's a friend. You know, it could be they're a good driver. And you can say that and it sounds like you believe that because that's a confessional belief, but it's a whole nother thing to actually get in the car with them. To entrust your life to them. It's a whole different thing, right? To rest your life upon it. Right here, John is saying, for those that rest their life upon Jesus, who believe in him, right? And Not just willing to confess his name at the appropriate time. And I'm not, I'm not putting confessional belief down. Confessional belief is very important. But we are talking about, here's the theolo- theological word, a definitive belief. It defines you, right? Right. It is the test of whether you actually believe these words that you say or that you hear. The getting into the car defines whether you actually believe that person is a good driver or not, right? We all have those people. We, we won't let them drive us around, right? I, I mean, ever since my sister got her driver's license, I've... I dreaded riding with her, and uh, you know, even uh, my older sister, six years, still, anytime we get in the car together, I mean, I'm gonna offer to drive, right? Because I've got a certain confession about her driving skills, right? Definitive, right? Defining our life. What are we willing to rest upon? What is that? John means This definitive belief for those who rest upon Jesus that Jesus has brought them to the destination where? Of being in the family of God. To be claimed by God. Not just as an image bearer, not just that God has a fatherly disposition towards his creation but that God has done everything to secure us a spot, a belonging in his very family. That's why Jesus came. That we might believe, follow, be defined by this light, the true light. Now here's what Jesus expects. Jesus expects that our confessional belief about him will also define who we are define who we are as a people. What does that mean? That believing in Him, that believing in the light means that as John goes to to, to write to Christians, that we will also walk in the light. That we won't love darkness. That we'll love the light, meaning that Jesus' character, His virtues, His fruit, what we are going to delight in as well. That we won't tolerate the dark places of our heart, our irritability, Our stubbornness, unfaithfulness, impurity, that we say, No, that's where I came from, the darkness. But that's not who I'm called to. That's not what a family member of God looks like because we belong. Now, here's the awesome theological grounding for what John states. You know, um, it's the question why do I belong in the family of God? Now, this is an interesting and very sensitive topic, and I want to step on anybody's toes today, um, but why do you belong in a family? Now, now, John goes into this, and he actually talks about it. He says, who were not born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. Now, now if you're like me, normally, you know, when you read something like that, you're like, I think I know what that means, but I'm not exactly sure. Just move on, right? Probably not important, but it's important. John's making a contrast here. He's saying, You belong in the family of God, not because of this, that, or the other thing. What is he saying? This is what he says. Normally, babies are born because of a conscious decision. You know, I I don't know exactly what that decision is, but John is highlighting there's a conscious decision that is made before a child is born. Secondly, that normally babies are born what? Because of man's desire. Second thing he says. Third thing. That they're normally, that babies normally come through the union of a man and a woman. That's how you and I come to belong in a family. Normally. John's just speaking broadly right here. That's how we come to existence. That's God's created order. And that we must respect that. And And yet, John right here says that's not how you belong in the family of God. It's not because you were born into a special family that you had status. You had an advantage when you were born. Other people don't have, right? Uh, Not because of your mom's and dad's desire. That's not why you were born. He says, who were born not of blood physically nor of the will of the flesh man's desire nor the will of man but of God you are born of God because of God because this is God's plan and God's desire and God the son comes to bring about that plan what what's the big point is that you and i can rejoice at being in the family of god but that immediately leads to a praise of god you brought me in god it it was not anything that about me like like you were the beautiful baby you know at at the hospital that day no no that's not why you know it it wasn't because you earned more it it wasn't because you had more character at a young age It wasn't any of those things, but simply because of an act of God. But of God. You were born of God. Like John's gonna go on and talk about with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, you need to be born again. What does he mean by that? You need to be spiritually born. You need to be born of God. That the Spirit would bring new life In you, and that only comes through the light, Jesus. This is what the Greek scholar William Mount says. He says, God is the one who initiates the process. As John, on the one hand, calls us to believe God, this is a firm call to believe God, to receive the light. That this Christmas you would adore Jesus because you are now resting upon Jesus. That your life is defined by him and that you have hope and life that you can rejoice in the garden is coming back to you. Fellowship with God because of Christ. Because Because of Jesus. We are called to believe but also acknowledge that it is God who initiates this in our heart and in our soul. It's not something that we can do as Nicodemus is baffled. How do I, how do I enter into the womb a second time and be born again? How do I do that? It's like, no, you goofball. This is a spiritual birth. It's not of blood. It's not of flesh. It's, it's not of your dad's desire. It's God. He desires you to be in his family. He's calling you to believe him cuz you belong in his family. So here's the answer why joy this Christmas is because through belief in Jesus you and I get restored fellowship with God. We can walk in the light. Why joy? Because of Christ, you and I belong to God in a special and amazing way to be claimed as a part of his family. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful that your grace shows us that you have the authority of God to claim and to bring into, to adopt us into your family God, I pray this Christmas that we would rest in your saving power as we adore you. That even though your first coming was humiliating to be rejected, it was good and perfect for us that we get to be called a part of the family of God, claimed by you because you were humiliated and rejected. You were rejected. We were accepted. We praise you that you took up this mission and this call. That we could have fellowship with you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.